Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So this practice of equanimity uh, paradoxically means that um, we we're out of balance, we don't have equanimity. That's how we learn equanimity. <laughs> it's like if you want to learn how to balance, you need to find out what it's like to not be in balance. Right? We learn balance by being out of balance, and so we learn equanimity by being reactive, by not having equanimity. If we knew how to be equanimous, we would need to practice it. So when we, when we bring to mind a situation, a relationship, a person, an aspect of our life or an aspect of ourself that we are not at peace with, different things will come up, different reactions, emotions, responses will arise. Helplessness, grief, anger, righteousness, fear, pain, hurt, all of it. And equanimity practice includes all of that. It doesn't mean not feeling those things. It means actually coming into contact with them and then making space for them. Grounding. Responding, being flexible, creating space. And through that, allowing it to to pass through us developing wisdom as we see those changes come and go, as we recognize, ah, this is how it is for me. I feel this way. I didn't realize that. And then we come into contact with it and really allow ourselves to feel the contraction or the tightness, the not wanting it to be this way, the resistance against the way it is. And it's through feeling that resistance, saying, no, I don't want this to be, that we start to let go and open up into, and this is how it is. So we make space for both. Sometimes an essential part of coming to equanimity is being able to forgive. Being able to forgive ourselves, being able to forgive others, and being able to ask for forgiveness. So the, the, there is a practice of forgiveness in the Buddhist tradition. It's not one of the four Brahma-viharas, but it's, a, it's an associated practice of the heart of connection and healing. And it's a practice that brings great resilience and strength when we can let go and forgive So forgiveness, I'd like to talk some about forgiveness this afternoon, give you some 
perspectives to think about and reflect on, uh, and then uh, and then do some practice together with forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean pretending that that nothing happened. It doesn't mean condoning harmful actions. And it doesn't mean not being angry. Forgiveness means not holding on to anger. It means not getting stuck there. Anger is a very, uh, can be a very healthy response. It's our organism's natural way of defending itself. And so when there's anger, it means that there's some, some perception of threat and danger. And so that energy comes to our defense to protect us, to keep us safe. But holding on to anger is harmful. There's been um, uh, a fair amount of research, actually. I mean, anyone who looks, if, you, if we look inwardly at that state of bitterness or resentment, we can see for ourselves that it's a lot of suffering. It eats away at us inside. And then there have been studies done, medical studies on the effects of anger and resentment showing that holding on to anger has really negative health effects. Every time we we, um, nurse a resentment holding on to something, not letting go, it feeds all kinds of stress hormones. Cortisol and adrenaline and norepinephrine. So nursing a grudge and and holding on to anger in a prolonged way, uh, they found that it, um, it increases the heart rate, it lowers our immune response, it interferes with problem solving, it can lead to depression. And forgiveness that the resolution of feeling stuck in that place lowers blood pressure, leads to more well-being, and has has positive health effects. So forgiveness is a process. It's not something that just happens usually. It's a process. And it's something that that we choose to do We choose to engage in that process because we see the pain. We see the the cost and the exhaustion of holding on to our resentment or bitterness or pain or anger. We choose to enter the process of forgiveness when we're tired of holding on to a grudge. And so some of that means beginning to understand why we're holding on to the grudge and what that's doing for us. Does it make us feel powerful or strong? Is it out of self-protection to try to take care of ourselves and ensure that something harmful that happens doesn't happen again? Is it some way of uh, seeking resolution that never happened? When we really start to look at it, though, we can see that, that the, the very act of constricting and, and, and 
maintaining the anger and the grudge actually leaves us trapped and in some ways helpless, actually less powerful because we become a victim again and again and again of that situation by keeping it alive. This is from, um, from the Dhammapada, one of the, one of the most translated texts in the world next to the Tao Te Ching. Um, the Buddhas quoted as having said, they insulted me, they hurt me, they defeated me, they robbed me. In those who harbor such thoughts, hatred will never cease. They insulted me, they hurt me, they defeated me, they robbed me. Those who do not harbor such thoughts, for them hatred will cease. So there again is this this connection between the patterns of our thought and the energy in our heart and the, the what we spend our time thinking about and reflecting on and turning over and over and over again becomes the space that we live in. So forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. It's not amnesia. It doesn't mean that we, we dismiss what happens. There's, um, there's a saying in Africa that Nelson Mandela made popular. It says, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. So forgiveness means that we stop drinking the poison and hoping the other person will get sick. So it's for us, it's to heal our own heart and release us of that pain of bitterness and resentment. This is, uh, this is from Dr. King, from one of his sermons, one of his more famous sermons, Loving Your Enemies. He wrote, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Forgiveness is a catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. It is the lifting of a burden or the canceling of a debt. The words, I will forgive you, but I'll never forget what you've done, never explain the real nature of forgiveness. Certainly one can never forget if that means erasing it totally from the mind. But when we forgive, we forget in the sense that the evil deed is no longer a mental block impeding a relationship. So it's removing that obstacle in our heart. I read a very powerful story um, of which there are countless uh, examples in human life of forgiveness, of removing that block in the heart. There's um, a man who lived in San Diego named Azim Kamisa, a Sufi man who grew up in Kenya. His parents were merchants from Persia who moved to Kenya 
and they fled Kenya to uh, to escape some of the chaos and violence that was happening uh, at the time he was growing up in uh, the neighboring countries of Rwanda that had spilled over into Kenya. <clears throat> he studied in London and later became an investment banker. And uh, his life was radically altered one day when he got a phone call that his... Uh, son in his young 20s who was engaged and enrolled in college down in L.A. uh, had been shot and killed. He was working at an Italian pizzeria, going out to deliver some pizza, and a group of four young teenage boys held him up and killed him. Shot One boy shot him for the pizza. And so he was at his house and the detectives came over and a friend came over to be with him. And when he learned about what had happened, the friend said something to the effect of, you know, I hope they find those, those bastards and fry them. And he said that spontaneously, he said, I don't feel that way. There were victims at both ends of that gun. He had a very deep faith in, in nonviolence and uh, had a meditation practice. And so um, he experienced uh, tremendous grief for months. He was, you know, couldn't get out of bed and uh, finally had a transformation. He went to do some, some retreat uh, on his own and meditate. And um, started to contact not just the pain of the loss, but uh, but some of the anger of his son being killed over something so trivial as you know ten dollar pizza, and uh, the absurdity of having fled Kenya, the violence in Kenya, only to have his own son killed on the streets of L.A. to gang violence. And um, he saw both his son and the boy who killed him as both as victims of something much larger in society. And he realized he had this insight that he needed to contact the family of the boy who had killed his son to reach out to them and to offer them forgiveness because he imagined that they must be suffering too. So it turns out that the young man who shot his son uh, was 14 years old at the time. He had grown up in South Central LA in the midst of gang violence, had seen his own cousin killed and, and as a result of violence, and had moved up to San Diego to be with, um, to be with his grandfather who was raising him, so only grandson. And uh, Tony was the name of the the, the shooter, uh, you know, had been hanging out with some friends that night who were part of just a small informal gang, and had, they'd hatched this plan to order a pizza and rob the rob the uh, delivery man. And when the when uh, Azim Kamisa, that's the name of the the man whose boy was killed, when uh, when his son refused to give him the pizza. <laughs> Tony pulled a gun and, and shot without meaning to kill him but ended up killing him 
And so a law had just been passed in California that allowed uh, minors under the age of 15, 14, 15 years old to be tried as adults. And so Tony was the first child, 14 years old, to be tried as an adult for the murder. And so uh, he was, he took a plea bargain and was sentenced to 25 years in prison. So uh, Azim, the father who lost his, whose son had been murdered, came to this family and uh, met the grandfather, Tony's grandfather, and said, I want you to know that I, I forgive you. I forgive your, I forgive your, your grandson and that uh, I'm imagining there's been a lot of suffering in your family too over this. And uh, the grandfather, he offered to help. He said, if there's anything I can do to help you in any way, please let me know. I'd be happy to help you. And so uh, Azim Kamisa ended up creating a foundation to uh, promote nonviolence among youth, at-risk youth, and uh, the grandfather of the man who murdered his son joined, and the two of them travel around and visit schools around the country, speaking about what happened and talking about the effects of violence and the virtues of nonviolence. And they raise you know, over a million dollars a year for this to spread the message of nonviolence. So this is, this is um, one thing that this man, Azim Kamisa, said. He said, forgiveness is a process. It's not a destination. And it doesn't mean skipping the grief. And then he quoted Rumi. He says, Rumi wrote, the cure for the pain is the pain. So there's a we have this potential as human beings to, for the heart to move beyond what we think is possible, to release our heart from, uh, from getting consumed by grief or resentment or anger. And it's not, it's not necessarily easy. One, one woman who worked with the foundation who lost her brother to gang violence. She said that the first time she heard Azim and um, Felix is the name of the, the, the grandfather, the uh, first time she heard them speak, she thought, this man's nuts, talking about forgiving someone who's killed your family member. She said it took her 10 years of working with the foundation before she was able to forgive the person who killed her brother. But she says, I can honestly say I forgive that person Part of that was being tired of living with hatred and revenge. Forgiveness doesn't condone the act and it isn't for the offender. It's a gift you give yourself. So the first step in this process is actually acknowledging the pain the cure for the pain is the pain. We have to actually be willing to turn towards and acknowledge the event and to recognize its impact. Sometimes 
Sometimes we hold on to something, but sometimes we go in the other direction. We try to skip over it. Oh, it's okay, I forgive you. I for- we, to try to avoid the discomfort of the pain or the, the difficulty between us, we, we, we try to make light of it and forgive too quickly without actually allowing ourselves to feel the full impact, to understand the effect it's had. So to actually acknowledge what happened and to allow ourselves to feel the the full range of emotions in response. So we have to want to forgive. It's, It's an intention rather than something that we do. The heart forgives. It, it lets go when it's ready. But we can aim the heart in that direction. We can have that intention to forgive. And then the process takes time. When the heart's ready, it lets go, it forgives. And it can come and go. Sometimes it's not just a one-shot deal. We forgive and then we get stuck again. And it changes over time. But it's a movement beyond beyond the event, beyond the situation, beyond the pain that, that comes to peace with the way things are. And in this sense, it's connected to equanimity because there's an acceptance and a peace in relation to the way things are. Forgiveness also involves a, a dimension or an aspect of wisdom. Of, of seeing our connection, of seeing the humanity in one another. And that quote that I read yesterday from Longfellow, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. So forgiveness is rooted in the understanding that we all we all make mistakes, that we're all learning, that life is a process of learning. And we all act sometimes out of ignorance or fear or hatred or greed, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. When we're in pain, we lash out. So again, this is, uh, this is from Dr. King. He goes on to say, we must recognize that the evil deed of the enemy, sorry, we must recognize that the evil deed of the enemy neighbor, the thing that hurts, never quite expresses all that he is. An element of goodness may be found even in our worst enemy. So that capacity to see beyond one moment or one event or even a series of events to not lose sight of the, the humanity there in one another. Sometimes part of the work of forgiveness 
means really being honest with ourselves about our values and asking the question, do I want to take this to my grave? And actually really using the contemplation of impermanence and death as a tonic, as a way of bringing up the, the places that we're holding on and saying, is it worth holding on to this? To hasten forgiveness by contemplating impermanence. There's a book by the, uh, by the name of The Four Things That Matter Most by Ira Bayek, who's a palliative care doctor. He writes about um, when people are dying, over the course of his career, he realized that there were four things that mattered the most to say or to do in that space in order to have closure in life. So those four are, please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. And I love you. It puts things in perspective when we think about letting go in the end. What really matters? Is it really worth holding on to this? What really matters to say to the people we love who are with, who are still with us or who have, who have left already? Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. This is from um, Stephen and Andrea Levine in their book, Awake at the Bedside. We have repeatedly observed that those who forgive the most profoundly seem to heal the deepest. Love is a gatekeeper that, unlike most, struggles to keep the gates open. So the sense of removing the block from the heart. So we can look at forgiveness and see that there's three or even four dimensions or directions of forgiveness. There's forgiving others in our life who have done or said something that's been painful intentionally or unintentionally. There's seeking forgiveness from others, taking responsibility for our own ignorance and foolishness and unskillfulness and asking for forgiveness. And then sometimes the hardest is forgiving oneself. Offering that forgiveness for oneself. And then the fourth is forgiveness as, a, as an integral part of life, as a way of life. Recognizing that you know, life breaks our hearts sometimes. And sometimes it's like the forgiveness isn't for anyone in particular. It's just, it's like forgiving life. Just being willing to forgive 
the way that this, this world can break our heart. There's a beautiful story about, um, beautiful, beautiful and sad, but beautiful story about a man um, from Thailand named uh, Jay Siripongs, who was, uh, who was convicted of uh, two murders. Uh, he was uh, involved in a robbery and he admitted to the robbery, but uh, denied that he had actually committed, committed the killing. Uh, but refused to share the names of those others involved. And so he was sentenced to death here at San Quentin. And uh, he grew up in Thailand, and he had been uh, a Buddhist monk temporarily when he was a child, which is a common practice in Southeast Asia to ordain temporarily. And um, while he was in prison, he, uh, he drew upon the meditation training that he had had when he was younger and experienced a really profound transformation uh, in the days and months leading up to his execution. And uh, many of the guards and inmates uh, supported the clemency, his clemency appeal. Even the former warden of San Quentin supported the plea for his uh, sentence being changed to life imprisonment from from execution. And a few days before he was set to be executed, uh, somebody, six days before, uh, a friend and attorney contacted a Bayagiri monastery up here north of Ukiah. And uh, the abbot, Ajahn Pasano, came down to San Quentin to spend three days with, uh, with Jay at the end of his life, offering guidance in his meditation and uh, companionship for him in the, in the process of coming to the end of his life. And there's a very beautiful, very short book called The Last Breath that you can, uh, you can get online for free about, about uh, their time together, their days together. There's one very poignant moment in the book that I wanted to share with you where uh, Ajahn Pasano is speaking with Jay about his life and uh, helping him prepare his mind for death, for, for letting go, and for using his meditation practice to, uh, to be as conscious and alert as possible during that dying process. And uh, they're going over the events of his life and the things that happened, and in particular the, the robbery and the situation. And at one point, Ajahn Pasano asked uh, Jay Siripongs, is there anybody that you haven't forgiven yet? And there's a long silence. And finally, Jay says softly, I haven't forgiven myself completely. So sometimes it's ourself that's the hardest to forgive, to come to that place of acceptance, to acknowledge the mistakes that we've made. And part of equanimity and forgiveness practice, again, is, is recognizing that, that we're not perfect, that we make mistakes, and allowing ourselves to be imperfect, allowing ourselves to be in the process of learning.
And so recognizing that forgiveness is an intention, so we can intend to forgive and recognize that even if we can't forgive, we can have that wish or that intention to say in the future, if I can't forgive now, in the future, may I be able to forgive. May I be able to forgive myself. May I be able to forgive others. And ultimately, we do this for ourselves and for our own heart, but I think that also on one level, we also do it for one another. There's the sense that holding on to hatred or self-judgment eventually just passes that on from one generation to the next or perpetuates that. So in the Dhammapada, that passage I read about nursing thoughts of hatred, the next, the next lines, the famous lines say, hatred never ceases through hatred. Only by love alone does hatred cease. This is an eternal law. Many do not realize that we all must come to an end. But those who do realize this, for them all quarrels end at once. So when we can heal the resentment and pain and hurt and anger in our own heart, there's a sense that we're doing it for one another as well. That we're, we're off, that becomes an offering to the world. And so this is how this is how Dr. King put it later in the same sermon. Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. The chain reaction of evil, hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars, must be broken or we shall be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So this act of forgiveness is a way in which it's also a gesture of moving the collective in that direction, recognizing whatever to whatever degree we can forgive in our own heart. We're bringing an end to hatred right here and right now and bringing more love and forgiveness and kindness into the, into the world. So Jack, uh, Jack Cornfield has a very lovely line. He says, forgiveness means giving up the hope of a better past. <laughs> There's a sense of coming, coming to peace with the way things are. And, uh, and the result, the, the, the fruit of forgiveness. You know, we each have maybe places in our life that are edges, but we've, we've all, we all know how to forgive. We've all done it many, many, many times. And, and we know the, the freedom of putting down that burden, the lightness, the openness, the possibility of moving on of saying, okay, this is done, this is over. I let this go, I'm gonna let this, I'm gonna let this rest. 
going to put this one down. And so that's the, that's the potential, that's the promise, that's the fruit of forgiveness. So I'll pause here. So there's a, there's a handout in your, or there's a page in your handout on uh, forgiveness with some, some phrases that we'll explore in a little while for forgiveness. So you can have a look at those in the next, uh, next segment. Let's take uh, take some time now f- uh, for some walking practice and just just let those reflections kind of move through you. Just let those thoughts settle. See what it brings up. If emotions get stirred, bringing compassion or equanimity to be with what's happening for yourself. And... Uh, you know, this was, uh, we're coming to the, to the end of our, our weekend together. So this will be the last walking period we have. And uh, to maybe just use some of the time also to reflect on these last three days and to see what's, what's spoken to you the most, you know, what's, what's been meaningful or helpful that you want to remember, that you want to carry forward and continue. You know, we've, I've, sh- I've shared a lot way more than any one person probably could take in and and uh, use <laughs> but uh, but that's okay because it's just you know just take just take what what's been helpful for you and sometimes reflecting on things can help to clarify what that is so it's uh it's five of let's take half an hour we'll we'll gather again at 325. Uh, and again, let's uh, let's try to keep the space in silence as much as possible. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.